It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for listening in. It's a Thursday edition. We have a, a lot of action uh, this hour. We're going to go into John Roberts. But uh, this is one of those days where there's about 20 top stories. I hope you like the three I picked. But uh, we also have to tell you a couple other things. If you're looking to travel, they're extending the travel ban uh, between Canada and Mexico, which is, is almost hysterical. Why? Because if you've been seeing what's happening at our southern border, the only people not coming from Mexico are the ones trying to do it the right way with a passport. And then when it comes to Canada, we don't even let the Toronto Blue Jays or Montreal Canadiens go back and forth. We make them play here in major sports. And the Canadians basically got their vaccination rate up to where we are. So we should be having normal travel, get that tourism uh, dollars going. And real quick, how disappointing was it yesterday, and I'm putting that mildly, that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline will now officially be green-lighted, meaning you're allowed to bypass Poland, an ally, bypass Ukraine, who wants to be part of NATO, and put the natural gas from Moscow, which we got a ton of and could have sold to our allies in Western Europe that's going to go through Germany. And Joe Biden basically bucked all of his aides in greenlighting this. He Ben Cardin upset by it. Uh, Senator Kane upset by it. Other senators on the Democratic side say this makes no sense. You talk about a wet kiss to Russia, we just gave it. Let's go to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It seems like every day there is a new scandal officials here are having to deal with. In this latest incident, the director of opening ceremonies, Kentaro Kobayashi, has been forced to step down. He's accused of making fun of the Holocaust in a comedy skit that aired back in 1998. 1998, there we go. There's three separate scandals, and there's uh, Olympics going on in Japan. I feel so bad, but the Japanese people don't want it. There's no fans. They're going to lose a ton of money. Sponsors are running from the hills, and the worst is not yet to come. Staggering star for Tokyo. Athletes led by Americans take a knee. 80-plus test positive for COVID-19. Fans are banned. Scandals get three officials fired, and we have not even had the opening ceremonies yet. And by the way, when it comes to the red, white, and blue, has America and American athletes lost their way? Not if George Foreman can help it. You'll hear what he said to me last night. Number two. This drunken spending binge Democrats have been on for the last six months is having a real effect on inflation. It's increasing the cost of everything we buy because they're spending money like crazy. They're paying people not to work. It's all borrowed money. It's increasing inflation. And I think people across the country get that. I think so, Congressman Scalise, but not the president. The spending splurge, and it surges. As inflation rises, Democratic pollsters are alarmed because Americans are angry about the rise in prices on everything we use, from milk to lumber. What does that mean for the non-party uh, stand and partisan, the partisan and non-partisan deals queued up to pass? Yes, when it comes to infrastructure, printing money we don't have for things Democrats need. We go inside Washington for the details. Number one. The CDC is going to say that what we should do is everyone over the age of, under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. 
You believe the president last night at a forum says that? Remasking America, get ready. That's what President Biden will tell the CDC to tell us. We have to take a stand for ourselves and our businesses. Vaccinated and unvaccinated, we have to make our own decisions. Masks are done. Sadly, despite a statistically small chance of getting the virus, they are zeroing in on school mandates again, too. So I asked the brain room. They're going to tell our kids from 2 or 4 to 20, 17, college, I guess, will make their own decisions. They're going to tell them to mask up. You just watch because the variant is running across our country. But the Delta variant is easy to spread, but it's not more deadly. The deaths are down. People like me have gotten vaccinated. I am not going to tell you to get vaccinated because I have not stayed in a Holiday Inn and I didn't go to medical school. So you will make that decision. You will decide if it's too dangerous. You will decide if it's too dangerous not to get one. I will not make that decision. I hope you're okay with that because I'm going to just bow out of all your medical decisions. I hope you're okay with that too. So I asked our brain room, can you get me the stats on the amount of deaths for kids? Zero to four, 165 deaths. That's statistically 0%. If you look at the 165, and I talked to Macari about this, did they have underlying conditions or other causes? But if it's statistically 0%, more of a chance of dying from the flu. 81 kids, younger than five, died from the flu from 2019 to 2020. Hmm. 12 occurred in children younger than six. So from kids five to 17, how many cases? 2,800. All right. Um, That's 10% of the total cases in this country. How many from zero to four got the virus? 2.1%. So almost nobody died from zero to four. Five to 17, 0.1%. But now you're going to put a mask on everybody just to be sure. Just understand, there's a counterweight to that, and that's emotional development. I don't make friends. I don't talk to teachers. I can't read emotions. It may sound simple to you because you're kind enough to be an adult and listen to me or be a teen and understand me, but for kids, they depend on adults to make decisions in their best interest. Don't tell me, President Biden, that's in my kid's best interest. However, if you are a parent, of a kid in any of these age brackets, and you want to put them in a mask, that should be your decision, not mine, not President Biden. Cut three. When will children under 12 be able to get vaccinated? Soon, I believe. Now, look, one of the things that I committed to do when I got elected, I said How I soon would... soon as soon, Mr. President, not to Well, I, I, and that's what, let, me hear, let me finish the question. The answer, soon in the sense that I do not tell any scientists what they should do. I do not interfere. And so they are doing doing the examinations now, the testing now, and making the decision now. But he said yesterday uh, the CDC would likely issue guidance encouraging children who have not been vaccinated against the coronavirus to wear masks. Well, how does he know that? We have not heard that. To me, you're putting your hand on the scale, even if you're telling people one thing. I think you're doing something totally different. And so many times he said things, he's got to walk back. That's got to be another one. One thing I like that he said yesterday on a different note, he is not for getting rid of the filibuster. He wants a talking filibuster. That's fine. You ever see these Republicans talk? They could talk forever. It will not be an issue. But for kids five and under, you kidding from two and up? Are you nuts taking that decision away from parents? This is, a, this is going to be two full years where kids have been wearing masks to school. They don't know how to wear it. They're all dirty. They don't know what their kids look like. They've been to school for the first time. Now they got the trauma of all this. 
And to me, you're doing irreparable damage. Please show some courage and put the power back with the parents. That's all we ask. I thought that was something reasonable. We'll see. You know what's not reasonable? What they're trying to do with this reconciliation-oriented infrastructure bill. So yesterday, foolishly, Senator Schumer idiotically said, I want to have a vote on this bipartisan infrastructure deal. Rumored to be $580 billion of new money, $1.1 trillion of total money for roads and bridges and broadband and things that we all agree on, from President Trump to President Bush to President Obama and now President Biden. I like that. But what they did is everything that was negotiated out, like the rise in taxes, the militarization of the IRS, the putting the human infrastructure in, the things that the Republicans negotiated out, they just put in this bill that's going to be jammed down our throats. What they're also looking to do is put $3.5 trillion into the bloodstream, into social programs. We don't have this money. We have a lot of money, and our economy is doing better. But this debt and the debt payment, we're paying an interest on this, is bogging us down. And the printing of the dollar is devaluing the dollar. And what I find it unbelievable is they try to tell us it's just the opposite. They're trying to tell us that by printing more money, it's going to be better on inflation. Nobody who's taken fundamental economics agrees with that or understands, I don't know, simple addition and subtraction understands that. I don't get it. It makes no sense. Not to Steve Scalise either. Cut eight. This drunken spending binge Democrats have been on for the last six months. It's having a real effect on inflation. It's increasing the cost of everything we buy because they're spending money like crazy. They're paying people not to work. It's all borrowed money from our kids, and it's raising costs. Uh, Whether you go to the grocery store, at the gasoline, at the pump, it's increasing inflation. And I think people across the country get that. Uh, But they don't want to do this for infrastructure. There was a bipartisan deal that Joe Biden himself walked away from. He gave his word to Republican and Democrat senators that he was going to support a bipartisan infrastructure deal. And then within an hour, Pelosi and Schumer threatened him, and he, and he folded like a cheap suit. Well, well here's the thing. Uh, then they came back. He embarrassed himself, and it just shows no strategy for an administration that's supposed to have this thing called experience and, and understand Washington. But they since, Senator Portman, Senator Cassie, came back to the table, worked on the bipartisan bill, even though another one looms at $3.5 trillion. I think they'll try to pass it. What's scary to me is they're actually going to try to jam down our throats election reform. And now just to put it simply, reconciliation could be done on a simple party line vote if you have 51 votes with the vice president. Why? Anything budget oriented, for some reason, they can pass it on simply 51 votes. That's how President Trump got his tax plan passed with 53 total. Okay, but that does. Of course, there's no math. In immigration infrastructure, of course, there's no math in election infrastructure. But what they're trying to do is jam it down our throats. The results will be absolutely catastrophic because it's essentially getting rid of the filibuster for anyone except Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and Elon Omar because it'll flood our system with social programs. It'll legalize all illegal immigrants. It'll nationalize our elections. That's what's coming our direction now. That's if they pass the reconciliation. The question is, and you could play this out, would you pass the $1.1 trillion bipartisan if you had the option? And most of which is the way they used to do it in Washington. They give a little, they get a little, and they come out with a package both sides are a little unhappy with and a little happy with. Okay, Would you do that knowing They're going to jam everything down your throats that you didn't want in that uh, bargain package. 
At first, I was against it. But now I'm thinking what's better for the country. We kind of need this money for these projects if they could find a way and convince me that these projects are actually going to get done. Remember, shovel-ready projects were never shovel-ready. So Mitt Romney said yesterday uh, they just need till Monday. Same thing with Senator Portman. They just seen some Monday. Joe Biden said, I think we're going to get the compromise bill passed. Cut 10. Remember, last four years, we had infrastructure week every week. (laughs) We didn't do a thing. But it's necessary. No, I really mean it. It's going to not only increase job opportunities, it's going to increase commerce. It's a good thing, and I think we're going to get done. Well, we'll see. Uh, But what they're doing on the other side in printing money has got a lot of people panicked. Remember, Janet Yellen, who used to be at the Fed, that's supposed to be nonpartisan, has now come out and said inflation will dip and it'll be short. It's gone up. So it'll be at 2%. It's at 5%. So why are we supposed to believe her? She's become a political hack. Driving the news, according to Axios, there's some panic on the left. This Celinda Lake is a pollster for the Biden presidential campaign. She says some disturbing news is emerging. Women voters are upset about inflation in a focus group. They're really experiencing it because they're still doing most of the shopping. They're doing table economics, microeconomics. They see the cereal. They see the milk. They see the paper towels all more expensive. They go to put a dormer on their house or extend their garage or add an addition, and they see how much lumber is. They can't staff these uh, construction companies, these contractors, so they got to pay more for the, for the workers they have, which means everything is more expensive. She advised Democratic election officials to make clear to voters that they understand their lived experience of higher costs in health care. If they do do that, now, they're just worried about polls and focus groups and winning elections. What I'm worried about is the country. If they do do that and they want to be convincing, you don't roll out $3.5 trillion. You don't give people money for having children. You don't bolster up Medicare to 60 years old to put trillions now into that that's unaffordable. You can't give all this money away while upping taxes on their earners in our country. That's what's going to happen if the Democrats are able to jam this down our throats. uh, 1-866-408-7669. When we come back, I'll take your calls and read your emails. Go to briankillme.com. Just uh, click on comments, and I'll be able to hear that. The bottom of the hour, John Roberts brings brings us inside Washington and what is actually taking place behind the scenes on both these deals and so much more. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. 
In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Because I've loved America all along. I've always loved America. And once you fall in love, just like falling in love with your wife, no one can say anything about it. The next night, she's my wife and I'm going to stay. That's why you make that thing until death do we part. And that's why nothing has ever shook my faith and love in the country. And when you love a country... Nothing can bother you. If you are halfway in love, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And that's George Foreman. And I had him on last night at the 7. I'll be on again tonight and tomorrow at 7 p.m. on Fox News primetime. That's Eastern. And George Foreman came on because I saw his tweet on, on July 4th, and it said, for 50-plus years, people are trying to tell me to dial back my love of the country. I won't do it. And he posted a picture of him in 1968, black and white, where he instinctively was handed and took a flag and walked around the ring, the American flag, after he won the gold medal, beating the Polish fighter at the same Olympics, John Carlos and Tommy Smith put up the black fist and basically talked about racial unrest in our country. They got in trouble for it. I respect both people for doing it. I just don't think it's the place to protest. I think that when you go out there and you decide, I want to be on the American team, be all in. Don't use that for what you think is wrong with the country. And George Foreman doesn't need me to tell him. He didn't need me to tell him in the 20s. This guy agrees with it then, and now that he's in the 70s, agrees with it now. Here's cut 17. I'll never turn my back on America because I grew up where people in this country, a guy by the name of Doc Broders, and, uh, uh, who taught me how to box, never gave up on me. A lady in Grants Pass, Oregon, her name was Miss Moon. She just loved me, gave me an extra bit of food on my plate, told me to be careful with my temper. I could, be do, I could do great things. And these people hunt me every night. And what do I say about them? They were Americans. They've passed on now, but I love them. That's America to me. America is helping Americans. He came from a tough situation. He was oversleeping school. Uh, he was uh, not taking anything serious. Uh, he joined the um, uh, the Army Corps, the uh, the Corps. I forgot the name of it. It was a youth group, at which time he had a chance to uh, show his boxing skills, at which time people saw the potential. Next thing you know, he's winning the Olympics, and he learned a work ethic and had these great mentors, many of which were white. And you don't make money back then as an Olympic athlete. You basically had to have another job, too, and weren't allowed to. You couldn't break your amateur status. When we come back... I'm going to talk to John Roberts, but I'm also going to play a little bit later John Carlos and Tommy Smith. They are, uh, or John Carlos anyway, the together with track stars, won their medals, and then used that time to protest. They have no regrets. George Foreman, same Olympics, uh, no regrets for not protesting, in fact, seeing the praises, and he is still beloved to this day. Not beloved necessarily in the beginning of his career, but certainly as he became a second heavyweight champ but during his comeback in his 40s he was. 
others uh, protesting, the women's soccer team, the Swedish soccer team, the United Kingdom soccer team, because they say is racial uh, discrimination and racism in the world. Okay, can you just play the sports? And when I interview you after, bring that up. Is that too much to ask? I hope they don't try anything on the podium. That will be a blatant violation of Rule 50 from the IOC. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm trying to bring the country together. And I don't want the debate to only be about whether or not we have a filibuster. There's no reason to protect it other than you're going to throw the entire Congress into chaos and nothing will get done. There's a lot at stake. The most important one is the right to vote. So uh, I was heartened by that, uh, that he is not, you know, he's helping Joe Manchin out, too, because he's basically standing strong against getting rid of the filibuster, maybe along with Senator Cinema, doesn't talk as much as uh, Joe Manchin. But I think that Senator Biden, who did that for 50 years, can't pretend that getting rid of the filibuster is good for the chamber uh, or pretend that this is a Jim Crow relic, as suddenly President Obama feels. Never felt that way when he was actually in the Senate or was president. Joining us now is John Roberts, who understands the inner workings of Washington, the play-by-play needed, and what happens behind the scenes and what really is going to happen in front of the cameras and how different they are. He's the anchor of America Reports. He doesn't have to work until 1 to 3, but he got up early for us. John, thanks so much. (laughs) Uh, Good to be with you, Brian. I'm not like you. I'm not working around the clock anymore, uh, (laughs) a a little bit of a welcome relief, but... uh, you know, trying to keep up with you is very, very difficult. You yeah, know, j- just that's this a week. A younger man, for yeah. sure. Uh, just this week, I get it done early. It's good, as you know, for a parent to be a morning show host because you get the rest of the second half of the day. But, John, just on this, I was heartened to hear the president say that yesterday. We can just get rid of the, get rid of the filibuster talk. Do you think it's in our rearview mirror? You know, I don't know. I think that there are a lot of Democrats who are going to continue to push the idea, particularly on this issue of the budget plan and the, quote, uh, human infrastructure bill. Uh, You know, I was uh, looking at a report from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, Maya McGinnis's organization, uh, yesterday. And it looks like the Democrats are playing hide the cheese with uh, the real cost of that bill, putting in arbitrary sunset provisions in order to get past a requirement uh, for a 60-vote majority. So there are still a lot of Democrats who are looking at this saying, you know, let's get rid of the filibuster at least on a temporary basis for certain bills, uh, little carve-outs, if you will, for a filibuster. But I I think in the overall, the sentiment in the Senate is to, to keep the rules in place. And Brian, this is, you know, so much of a where you stand depends on where you sit type of thing. You know, when the Democrats uh, were in the minority in the Senate, they used the filibuster liberally. They did not call it Jim Crow 2.0 to try to forestall any Republican moves in terms of legislation. But now that they're in power with that razor thin majority, they have to say, hey, listen, the only way to get business done for the for the American people is to get rid of the filibuster. And it just smacks of hypocrisy when they make that argument. But this is politics in Washington, and it's driven in large part by hypocrisy. All right, so let's talk infrastructure first. So Senator Schumer comes out and says, I want a vote by Wednesday. 
And over the weekend, I'm watching the Sunday shows, and they're saying, I don't know what he's talking about. We have nothing written down. It's not even a matter of debating issues. We have not agreed on anything. So Wednesday came and went. And now what the result is, a promise, verbal promise anyway, Mitt Romney uh, and Portman and I think Cassidy have all said we'll have something on Monday. So did Schumer's goosing the process work? Well, you know, when you look at Bill Cassidy, who was on our program the other day, uh, he was blaming the Democrats for not having any legislation written. And you know, even though, that, don't forget too, there are two infrastructure bills. There's the 1.2 yeah, trillion. Yeah, let's talk about the bipartisan, bipartisan first. Yeah, the, there's the bipartisan bicameral infrastructure bill, and then there's the the human infrastructure bill, which is Democrat only. But, you know, the Democrats still control the agenda. Bill Cassidy is the lead negotiator on the Republican side, but the Democrats have got to come to the table with with language as well. So I think maybe Schumer added a little bit of fuel to the fire in terms of actually getting something on paper out more quickly. Uh, But still, Democrats are pushing for this idea of this human infrastructure bill, which Republicans are fully against. And no amount of prodding from Senator Schumer is going to get them to move on that. Which is about $560 billion of new money, $1.1 roughly trillion of total money because they want to repurpose some pandemic money. Tell me how significant this is. I see a lot of Democrats on the House side saying, we don't like what we're seeing. We're We're not signing off for this. They got a small margin between three and five seats. Henry Johnson says, I am not in. I'm not voting for it. Uh, Steve Cohen, Democrat, Tennessee. We don't want to see our work taken for granted and just be a rubber stamp for these Republicans. Uh, He told Axios that. Uh, So I think that Nancy Pelosi uh, or Chuck Schumer, assuming that they got the House in line and and the Democrats in line, might be assuming too much. Yeah. And again, this is this is why the Democrats are pushing for that separate bill, the one that Biden talked about. And I think Biden really made a mistake when he said that he he wouldn't sign one without the other, because that really was throwing the Republicans under the bus just a couple of hours after they came out of the White House very optimistic about, you know, the the possibility of a bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. But there are a lot of Democrats who are holding out saying, look, $1.2 trillion sounds like a lot, but it's not enough, that they want to go multiples above that. But again, when when you look at this study, from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. They're saying this this idea of it being $3.5 trillion is hogwash. It is probably going to be 5 or $5.5 trillion wow. because a lot of these provisions that you're putting in, you have arbitrary sunset deadlines and dates on them, but they're not going to sunset. They're going to become permanent. And, and that would mean that it would add to the deficit uh, outside of a 10-year window, which means that it would not be eligible to be passed as a reconciliation bill. So, again, it's it's an idea of the Democrats playing hide the cheese with this stuff. And, and the American public needs to be aware of what's going on up there on Capitol Hill. And, John, you just told me something I didn't know. So you're saying through reconciliation— Wow. Were, wow. I, let, me write, let me write down the date. <laughs> give me, hey, Allison, give me a second. Uh, you want to write this date down, too? Because don't I always tell you I know everything? Can you? Okay, you, you got it. You, did you write it down? And by and large, you do know everything. <laughs> well, um, so John, I didn't know that. So if you pass a reconciliation bill, which is a simply uh, fifty uh, fifty-one votes, it can't add to the deficit in a ten-year window. Wow! So they'll, they'll do some creative math. Correct. You know, so they're doing lots of creative math, and mostly what they're. It, you know, George Bush might call it fuzzy math. 
but what they're doing is they're putting in these arbitrary sunset dates for things like the child tax credit. For example, the child tax credit under the new budget plan uh, sunsets in 2025, but Democrats want to make it permanent. So that would take it out beyond 2025, would take it out beyond the 10-year window, and it would add to the deficit, and so then it would not be eligible for the reconciliation process. couple of it's things. complicated, right. but, but again, it's, it's this idea of don't look there, look over here sort of thing. Right. Uh, so the parliamentarian is going to have so much pressure on her because in, if you listen to what Clyburn's saying, they're going to try to put voting infrastructure in this package, and they're going to try to put immigration infrastructure in this package, which has nothing to do with finances, dollars and cents. How can you rationalize that to a parliamentarian? Well, you know, making the argument to the parliamentarian is is one thing, but making the argument to your constituents is is quite another. You know, all of these Democrats want to be seen as throwing bones to their constituents. And, and whether it's immigration infrastructure or voting infrastructure, they're all talking to their constituents. And, you know, all they have to do is say, look, we tried, we failed. But it really is a stretch. You know, there's a there's a saying in Washington that you Christmas tree up a bill by hanging all these ornaments and all these different, you know, you got your tree. And then you start hanging all these different ornaments and lights on it and, and, and whatnot. And that's clearly what they're doing with this bill. Uh, it happens with literally every bill. It's just that the, the ornaments on this particular tree are a lot more controversial than they have been for some bills in the past. But I think that a lot of this would just be, you know, constituent services as opposed to actually believing that they're going to get it. Through. Right, because it's kind of scary to think a million people could come to our country illegally, be bused to places we don't know, and we know a lot of them test positive for the coronavirus, and then mm-hmm. find out they're going to be citizens on a simple party line vote. Uh, that would be a little that'd be a little bit more than scary. Because they're not even trying to secure the border. And here's the really frightening thing, is that the Biden administration is considering, under pressure from left-wing Democrats, rescinding Title 42, which so far, since it was put in place, and that's the the public health emergency exclusion of people who come across the southern border, uh, 60 percent of people who come across the border currently under Title 42 are turned back and sent back. That's more than 600,000 people just in the first six months of 2021. Can you imagine, Brian, if Title 42 wasn't in place oh my goodness. and those 600,000 people were allowed to stay in the United States? Our resources on the southern border are stretched to the breaking point now with only 40 percent of the people who come across the border being allowed to stay. Can you imagine if 100 percent were allowed to stay in numbers like 600, 700,000 people? That's more than the population of of Washington, D.C., on a monthly basis. What effect would that have on the country? And what could the potential health effects be as well with the Delta variant of COVID running rampant in in the Western Hemisphere? It's just it's crazy to think about. And and the numbers are going up at the people at the border. Now it's just so amazing that the president's getting away with this, telling people you got to get vaccinated. you got to get vaccinated. We have a team out there knocking on doors, getting people vaccinated. Hey, Facebook, if you don't straighten out your act, you're killing people. At the same time, ignoring at the border where people we don't know from countries, we have no idea where they're from, they're coming across. And I think the positive cases are up 900 percent in the Rio Grande Valley. I mean, this is stuff that we wouldn't tolerate from our teenager, this illogic, this uh, ignorance. Why are we tolerating it from our president? Yeah, it is kind of crazy. And now we're now the talk is uh, at the White House of renewing mask mandates for people who are vaccinated. 
the reward for getting vaccinated was you can finally take off the mask. You can go about your lives in the way that you used to. Now they're going to start to roll that back. <clears throat> you know, this administration, rightfully, is trying to uh, increase uh, vaccine compliance. Uh, or, you know, if you don't want to say use a word like compliance, which sounds like you're being forced to do it, you know, increase the number of people who are being vaccinated. How does it give people any incentive to get vaccinated if you're saying we have to return to a mask mandate because of this Delta variant? While at the same time, we're letting all of these people come across the border. And you pointed it out, a 900 percent increase in the first two weeks of July among people who have uh, tested positive for COVID in the Rio Grande Valley sector alone. How do you inspire people to get a vaccine when all this other stuff is going on? I just I just don't understand it. Yeah. Count me out on the mask. Yeah, we have a freedom to make our own decisions. We get it. Uh, John Roberts. Count 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 me in on the vaccine, Brian. I I happily got it. I was excited to get it back in March, uh, you know, in part because I thought finally I can you know, life can begin to get back to normal if we all band together. And now there's talk of rolling all of these all of this progress back. It's just really frustrating. Absolutely. I got it, too. But I just don't think it's my place to tell everybody else to get it, especially when I have a a friend that I play soccer with whose son got it at 17 and has swelling of the heart and now can't play, and they wonder when he's ever going to be able to exert himself again. For at least six months, he's on the sideline. That parent feels terrible because they recommended their kid get it to so they could get on campus this year. So there's a yeah, there's a I'm problem sure. with non-medical people like me recommending to other people to get it. I don't feel comfortable doing that. No, I mean, it should be a conversation between the, the patient and the doctor. Nicole Sapphire uh, tweeted out uh, yesterday, you know, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who's one of our medical uh, contributors, tweeted out that maybe young people should get a single dose or maybe they should get a reduced uh, potency double dose of the vaccine to prevent this this inflammation problem. I was talking to, I was anchoring with Shannon Bream yesterday. She knows a young person who's now back in the hospital for the fourth time with myocarditis, uh, the inflammation of the heart. And and you, I guess, you know, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. So we, we can say, look, vaccines are a good thing. Uh, they prevent serious disease. They can help us all get back to normal. But when it comes down to actually getting the vaccine, you should, there should be a conversation between the patient and, and the doctor to take into consideration you know, underlying health conditions or the potential for adverse side effects, that sort of thing. So while we can say that they're a good thing, we, we can't tell everybody to go out there and get it. John Roberts makes a lot of sense. Uh, one to three, watch it today. Is there a, is a, anybody you want me to, to promo now? Let me let me write down the date that I made sense as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we've got we've got John Katko on. Uh, Congressman from New York, he's going to be talking about reintroducing an act to um, make controlled substances, fentanyl, and all of its analogs because of the, the overdose death skyrocketing. And they're skyrocketing there in New York State as well. Uh, Dr. Mark Siegel is going to be with us to talk about uh, everything going on with masking and COVID and uh, the Delta and Lambda variants. Uh, we're going to have a mother who came out at a Virginia Beach school board meeting on Tuesday, which was a very tumultuous meeting uh, where the parents were saying, look, we don't want our kids back in masks. Uh, she's going to be joining us. Geraldo is going to be on. We've got a, a big show today. So uh, please uh, tune in one to three on the Fox News channel. Yeah, I thought Chris Wallace had big promos. I think, Allison, you tell me, I think John Roberts had a bigger promo. This is unbelievable. Give him an inch, he takes a yard. And he makes a lot of sense. Uh, John, thanks so much. We'll be Just watching. for that first down, Brian. <laughs> you know down. it. Back in a moment. 
newsmakers, and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. The Olympics are just two days away, and I saw that uh, due to COVID concerns, the U.S. women's gymnastics team has left the Olympic Village to stay at a nearby hotel. You know there's a problem when Red Roof Inn is the safer option. Uh, right now, a lot of people are leaving, not coming. And the Tokyo, I can't believe it. The Japanese people and major organizers are back. I want, want this whole thing to end. I feel so bad because this is a chance for Japan to shine, to show that their uh, country, although their uh, population is aging and not uh, reproducing, they were going to show they're still a factor. I think they're the fourth largest economy. We know what happened last year with the cancelization, and now you have this year no fans. They're going to lose a ton of money. You have organizers backing out. Now you have controversies. Get this. Uh, There's footage of Kentaro Kobayashi from the 1990s emerging, in which he appears to be making jokes about the Holocaust. Now, why is that significant? He was supposed to provide a lot of the entertainment. That's not good. I guess he's a big name there. Japan's chief Olympic chief, Saiko Hashimoto, said the video ridiculed painful facts of history and kicked him out. The dismissal is the latest in a string of scandals to hit them. Another one. Let's take a look at this one. The show directed the Olympics opening ceremony has been dismissed one day after the event was being holding because evidently he made some uh, fun of somebody else's weight. Um, I don't think that was something that couldn't have been handled with an inter-office menu or an apology. So it turns out the creative chief, Hiromi Sasaki, quit after suggesting that plus-size comedian Naomi Watanabe could appear as an Olympic pig. So not nice, but usually doesn't get you kicked out. I didn't Yoshimori Yoshiro Mori was forced to step down as the head of the organizing committee after he made remarks about women that were criticized as inappropriate. Mr. Mori was quoted as saying that women talk too much and that me, uh, at meetings and with many female board members, uh, if you have too many female board members as directors, the meetings would take a lot of time. That got that person kicked off because saying women talk too much. Usually they'll be like, hey, inappropriate comment, kind of like a, a talk show segment. That's it. Now, what are they going to do? They got no one organizing the opening ceremonies tonight. No, it's a disaster. I mean, it, everyone's getting too sensitive overall. I mean, why are why are our woke issues going abroad? Do you know the Holocaust comment was made in, in the 1990s? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So, Mr. Kobayashi said, "Entertainment should not make people feel uncomfortable." I understand that my stupid choice of words at the time was wrong, and I regret it. To me, that used to be enough. No, now you get fired. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Go to BrianKilmeade.com. Tell me what you think. I'll try to get to your comments. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world. So glad you're here. 
Uh, Morgan Ortega is going to join us shortly, former State Department spokesperson, also a veteran. J.D. Vance at the bottom of the hour, one of the hottest senatorial candidates in the country. He wants to replace Senator Portman in Ohio. And I don't have to tell that to WHIO listeners. He's also the author of Hillbilly Elegy. He's going to be with us. And we'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. I know you have a lot to say, and especially from the Midwest, where they're still celebrating Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks championship, first one since 1971. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. It seems like every day there is a new scandal officials here are having to deal with. In this latest incident, the director of opening ceremonies, Kentaro Kobayashi, has been forced to step down. He's accused of making fun of the Holocaust in a comedy skit that aired back in 1998. Wow, uh, that's a long time ago. Staggering uh, staggering starts to the Tokyo Games as athletes led by Americans take a knee prior to their contest. 80-plus test positive for COVID-19. Fans are banned and scandals get three officials fired. And we have not even had the opening ceremonies yet. Have we lost our American way, I ask you? Not if George Foreman can help it. You'll hear from Big George soon. Number two. This drunken spending binge Democrats have been on for the last six months is having a real effect on inflation. It's increasing the cost of everything we buy because they're spending money like crazy. They're paying people not to work. It's all borrowed money. It's increasing inflation. And I think people across the country get that. But we're still printing it and spending it. The spending surge as inflation rises. Democratic pollsters are alarmed because Americans are angry about the rise in prices on just about everything we use. What does this mean for the nonpartisan stand uh, under uh, infrastructure bill and the partisan infrastructure bill? One will probably pass. The next one will be jammed down our throats. Printing money we don't have for things Democrats need will actually only raise inflation. Number one. The CDC is going to say that what we should do is everyone over the age of under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? Remasking vaccinated America? That's what President Biden will tell the CDC to tell us to do. Mark my words. We have to take a stand for ourselves and our businesses. Vaccinated and unvaccinated, we made our own decisions. Sadly, despite a statistically small chance of getting the virus, the people that have no say are kids, and they're going to mandate masks for kids. What a joke. Morgan Ortegas joins us now, former State Department spokesperson. Morgan, always great to hear from you. Hey, Brian. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Get ready for pandemic part two. Is that what the world is doing? Well, when you look around the world, I mean, it's interesting. Some places are are starting to open up. Uh, you know, travel to Europe is actually open. Uh, I have some friends that are that are headed there right now, headed to France. So uh, Croatia has been open to Americans for a while. So listen, you can't live in a pandemic environment for forever. Um, and, and, you know, especially a, a lot of countries in Europe, allies and friends are dependent on tourist uh, revenue. So I think you're going to continue to see the countries taking precautions like requiring specific uh, COVID-19 tests or requiring uh, proof of vaccination or both. Right. Um, so that they can uh, allow as many travelers as possible to, to continue. All right. I, I got to bring you to uh, one of your area of expertise. First, disturbing news about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. 
Joe Biden evidently bucked a lot of his staff and said, we're going to let the Russians finish it and the Germans complete it, and they'll use it. It bypasses Poland. It bypasses the Ukraine. And it gives yep. natural gas and oil to our allies we're paid to protect. We, are, we actually pay to protect, I should say. We offered a deal where we would give them the natural gas they need. We'd work out something on the price. Instead, Joe Biden finishes the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Tim Kaine, Democrat. Upset by it. Janine Sheen, Democrat, upset by it. Ben Cardin, upset by it. Why is this something he wants to do? Can you help me? I can't figure it out. I mean, and, and his senior State Department officials have also leaked uh, their displeasure, uh, right, that people within the administration are distancing themselves uh, from him on this decision. It, it makes no sense, right? You're giving uh, Russia, n- not just for the next few years, you know, potentially generationally, uh, you're making Europeans dependent on uh, on Russian gas. Um, you are, you know, you're looking at our, our allies like Poland, like Ukraine, who are incredibly worried about the the geopolitical instability that this will that this will cause for them. Um, it, it, you know, I, I hate to say this because we do this a lot, but I, I can only imagine if we had done this under Donald Trump. And then on top of it, you know, reportedly the Biden administration. Uh, told the Ukrainians not to talk to Congress about it, not to tell them about, you know, the decision. And and, and so it is uh, it, it is the weakest stance. What do you mean Russia by that? that I'm sorry. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Don't lobby Congress on your behalf because they're bypassed? So uh, this in- is from Politico, and this is from several reporters in Politico that I worked with, uh, Betsy Woodruff, Alex Ward. These are, these are tough, you know, reporters uh, who, you know, it's not like some right-wing blog reported this, right? These are mainstream reporters. Uh, from Politico that 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 said that uh, uh, the Ukrainians basically said the Obama, excuse me, the Biden administration told them do not go to Congress and tell them about the deal that uh, that the United States and Germany are making on Nord Stream 2. Don't complain about it, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and it's pretty, listen, it never ends well in an administration whenever you tell someone, but don't tell Congress what we're doing. Right? That sort of never ends well. Right. Morgan, the other thing is they're going to give them money to help them with transition to green energy. Can you imagine the arrogance? Well, it, it also, if, if climate change, you know, Mike Pompeo says this a lot, right? There's something that, that is the guide point of every administration. For us in the Trump administration, our, our guide point, uh, the, the thing that founded all of our principles and all of our policies was America first, right? Is this in the best interest of America? That's how we looked at every policy that we pursued around the world. The organizing principle for the Biden administration is climate change. Uh, and everything that they look to do around the world is based off the, the fact, what they think is the fact that uh, climate change is an existential uh, threat to the United States and the world. If that's the case, if that's your organizing principle, how in the world do you support this um, Forget the geopolitical instability and the fact that you're propping up the Russians. How do you support this pipeline? There's nothing clean about the energy about this pipeline. It's, it flies in the face against everything that they claim they stand for. It's unbelievable. So Afghanistan presser, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Secretary of Defense, trying yep. to put a smiley face on the ridiculous, irresponsible dismount from Afghanistan, saying we've been there too long. General Milley acknowledging as he puts up a map that the Taliban are on the march, even though they're outmanned 300,000 reportedly to 75,000. Cut 33. I would tell you that as of today, 
more or less, I guess it's about 212, 213. It's in that range, 200s. Uh, the district centers are in Taliban control. It's about half of the 419 that are out there. Uh, and what they're trying to do is isolate the major population centers. They're trying to do the same thing uh, to Kabul. Uh, and roughly speaking, order of magnitude, uh, a significant amount of territory has been seized over the course of six, eight, ten months sort of thing by the, by the Taliban. So momentum appears to be, strategic momentum appears to be sort of with the Taliban. You think so? You think they have the yeah. momentum? Yeah, I mean, our intelligence community uh, has also predicted this and, and saw this coming. Uh, and, and, you know, the bottom line is one of the things that General Austin and General Milley kept pushing yesterday is, is that they're putting these nodes in place uh, to have over-the-horizon capabilities uh, to launch um, strikes, attacks, you know, if needed, if al-Qaeda or ISIS reconstitute. Uh, I hope that that's accurate. You know, I mean, that that's going to be incredibly tough just given the uh, the amount of time, for example, it takes to get from uh, from Qatar to Afghanistan. I mean, that's still a lengthy flight. It's, it's not like when we left Iraq in 2009 and you had bases all over the region. This is this is a much longer, much farther over the horizon. Um, so I know that, you know, like Senator Lindsey Graham and others have predicted on your show that this is going to be similar to when President Obama pulled out of Iraq and we just simply had to go back in. And we know the challenge for this, Brian, is that it's going to be much tougher uh, to go back into Afghanistan if, if we see al-Qaeda or uh, ISIS reconstitute itself. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people are just puzzled why we aren't leaving a small residual counterterrorism force. Look, we know President Trump started it, and we know the military was able to win him over and say, listen, it's going to be more detrimental to leave massively, and every our gains could be done, and al-Qaeda could be back. Senator Graham is one of the people who thought he could convince him to do just what you said. In your mm-hmm. estimation, with Mike Pompeo sway with the president, do you believe that would have been the case? There is no doubt that President Trump made it very clear uh, that he wanted to end what he deemed as America's endless wars and that he did not want to leave troops for forever. But the way that uh, Mike Pompeo and his team negotiated uh, the agreement with the uh, excuse me with the uh, Taliban is that our uh, our troops leaving would be conditions based and would be based on the counterterrorism threat on the ground. So you can ask yourself if if that counterterrorism threat would ever completely uh, dissipate in order for us to completely pull out troops. I think being a former CIA director, uh, Secretary Pompeo, you know, was was always inherently skeptical that there that there would be such a negligible threat that we could afford to to leave um, entirely. Uh, but the point, you know, was and and I think President Trump um, had the had the uh, pulse of the American people, that people did want to to end the forever wars. But I think there's a difference between doing that and operating a small and agile counterterrorism force to keep uh, the Taliban, ISIS, al-Qaeda in check. So General Petraeus said on Monday, I'm going to talk to him tomorrow on uh, on Fox News primetime at 7. He said this, not sure, uh, uh, he goes, the situation on the ground is becoming increasingly dire. Not sure they'll take the entire country, but the situation on the ground is becoming problematic. They're now on, if you could just page down, um, the outer portion of Kabul. So if they, Kabul will be tougher to take, but they have to choose to fight. A lot of times they're just choosing, um, a lot of times they're they're choosing not to fight and to give up mm-hmm. to save their lives. Uh, they're on the outer portion of Kandahar City right now, arguably the second most important time. I want to pivot, if I can, over to China. 
kind of stunned yeah. a couple of days ago. The Microsoft hack affected 30,000 businesses, and we were able to rally NATO allies to condemn China. But where are the sanctions? Where's the retribution? Where's the hell to pay? China's message, what is messages China getting? We're going to give you strong words if you try to steal our stuff and take our stuff? Yeah, well, China's getting the same message that the Russians got. Remember, there's been several high-profile attacks that have emanated from Russian soil, cyber attacks, that is. Uh, And what did President Biden do after those attacks? He excused uh, the Putin uh, government. He excused Putin himself and said, well, he didn't really have anything to do with it. The government didn't have anything to do with it. These are cyber actors. Right, but they're cyber terrorists on their soil. And if you don't believe that Putin or Chairman Xi can't control the cyber actors on their on their soil, then, you know, i got a bridge in Nebraska for you, right? So, um, so obviously what we should have done, uh, and, and the reason why I'm bringing up Russia is because the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans and whoever else has a cyber capability saw what happened whenever there was uh, big spectacular attacks on our critical infrastructure in the United States. They saw the president of the United States States excused the government from from where these attacks emanated. He didn't demand that the cyber uh, criminals be extradited to the United States. I mean, we didn't see anything publicly other than the fact that they're having some closed door meetings uh, with the Russians on on cyber issues. Right. That's the only thing that we've heard. And so you're going to continue to see other nation states uh, do this as long as we think they can get away with it. I mean, remember, this started with China back in the Obama administration, whenever the Chinese hacked in and stole all the information from everybody who has a security clearance in the United States. Right. The Chinese have that information. And President Obama and Chairman Xi uh, had a press conference and went up before the world and said, oh, uh, the Chinese said, oh, we agreed not to do this anymore. So, uh, you, you know. They, they agreed over 10 years not to do the activity that they've just been caught doing this week. So gotcha. I think that there needs to be a real open discussion, Brian, about proportionality. We talk about proportionality in warfare, right? right. You know, if you if you physically attack with a bomb or whatever, you know, uh, something in a country, there's all these disciplines uh, on, 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 on how you respond and what's a proportional response. And I think we need to be having that in cyberspace. Uh, we need to stop being so quiet about you. it, pretending like this is a hush thing that we can't talk about it. That's, we can talk about it. If they do this to us, let's do something really public and let's hold them accountable. Let's quit hiding behind, oh, we can't talk about cyber. It's so secretive. Give me a break. They're taking down our critical infrastructure. Morgan Ortegas, thanks so much. Thank you, sir. When we come back, the Texas lawmakers are beginning to break their exodus filled with COVID-19 and faux pas. Well, two have already left Washington Back to Texas. That story next. Expanding your knowledge base. It's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. You're all hypocrites. You're sitting here without masks and you want our kids masks. Adults have access to the vaccine. It's time to let our children resume normal life, see their teachers and classmates' faces, and for our children to stop living in fear. It's not a difficult recipe. That's what your job is. Do your job. 
and take the masks off our kids and stick to education. Oh, man, there's some angry people, and it's about they're about to get angrier because the president of the United States basically said it. I think kids should go back to school with masks. They don't even bring into account the emotional damage done, especially by the little kids, and they're about to do it again. This should be off, and I talked to people in my town who are on the school board, and they said there's really very little chance we'll come back with masks. Well, if this variant continues to spread, even though it's less lethal and kids aren't targeted, uh, if they are targeted, it doesn't seem to resonate, thankfully, with these kids because zero to four have statistically no deaths and their positive cases have mild symptoms. And if they are going to spread, we have vaccinated adults and everyone's got access to vaccine. Play this out. This is what matters. But I watched Governor Newsom. In Los Angeles, wearing a mask indoors again, even though he's fully vaccinated. Why he's doing that, Las Vegas is doing the same thing. Parts of Louisiana is getting beyond that. I'm not on any part of it. If they start recommending from uh, from the bully pulpit from the White House, more masks is going to be a huge backlash. Think about this. You're going to just stay home. Really? I'm going to go out to the restaurant and wear a mask? And get looks because it might dip down and why, you know, not understand whatever. You have to put your mask on to go go back to that, to go to the bathroom. People are going to stay home. And that's where the super spreaders take place. I'm pretty sure we've seen this. Uh, we've seen this movie before. Now, I told you before about the Texas lawmakers, and I want to share this with you. Those renegades, 50 of which left Texas rather than be uh, give the Republicans a quorum to pass election reform. Now, two have left. This guy, Phil Carter, and another guy, Phil Cortez. Uh, This one guy, Phil Cortez, I'm hopeful, he said he came back to negotiate with House Republicans. Chris Turner, who's chairman of the Democratic Caucus, who I imagine led this exodus, this cowardice exodus, he said he had no idea that Phil Carter was leaving, but stated that he still stands by his conviction and he will work with the other side. Now, you need, you have 93, those two are back, seven to go. You get to 100. And that's all the Republicans would need to start passing legislation. There's other stuff that needs to be done. And I thought almost everybody was uh, on the same page with trying to reinforce the border. But just as they snuck out while no one else was looking, one of these guys comes back and didn't even tell the rest of his caucus. I'm Brian Kilmeade. You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. A big guest coming your way. He wants to be the next senator from Ohio, J.P. Vance. He'll be next. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. The entire industry, amongst other industries, continue to struggle to find employees. How do you and the Biden administration plan to incentivize those that haven't returned to work yet? Hiring is our top priority right now. Well, two things. One, if you notice, we kept you open. We spent billions of dollars to make sure restaurants could stay open. And uh, and, uh, a lot of people who now, who worked as waiters and waitresses, uh, decided that they don't want to do that anymore because there's other opportunities. 
at higher wages. And so I think your business and the tourist business is really going to be in a, in a bind for a little while. Okay. Is that an acceptable answer? This guy owns 30-plus restaurants. He wants to put people back to work because he's got the business. Your restaurant is going to be in a bind. Your industry is going to be in a bind for a little while. To me, that is totally unacceptable answer. What about for J.D. Vance? He's running for Senate. You know him, best-selling author, Ivy League grad, served in the military, uh, and now wants to replace uh, Senator Portman in Ohio. Now, uh, J.D., you tweeted about this. You thought that was totally unacceptable answer. Why? Yeah, I did. And, uh, Brian, if folks want to help us out, they should go to JDVance.com. I mean, you know, I actually know the guy who asked the question. I was shocked when I saw him because somebody sent me a text message of that video clip. And I was like, oh, my God, that's John, who's built a lot of great businesses here in Cincinnati and started to expand uh, to other parts of the Midwest. But but the reason it's unacceptable is, is, is two reasons. First of all, the president of the United States should be sympathetic, should be understanding, should be trying to help people solve problems. The president was totally dismissive yep. of the fact that this guy is trying to hire good people and has got a real problem. The second thing that's just crazy about it is it's not just insulting to this business owner. It's insulting to anybody who works in a restaurant. The idea that restaurant jobs aren't good jobs is not something the president of the United States should be saying to the workers or to the owners of these businesses. Like It's just so out of touch, and it's so insulting to the people who build a life in that industry. Plus a guy that never had a private sector job in his life. He cheated his way through law school, went right to the Senate in his 20s, and now he's president uh, in his uh, 80s, so uh, 78, so uh, enough. Number two is pay him more. Yeah, if the market wants you to pay him more. But this is not the market. This is the government. The government gave you so much money not to work. This guy who owns 39 restaurants, John Lanny, now has to compete with the government's money, which is taxpayer dollars, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And it's not just the restaurant industry, right? You talk to workers and and business owners all across the state of Ohio, they'll tell you they're struggling hard to find good people. How is it fair to workers who go in and bust their rear end and make less money than somebody who sits at home without a job? That's not fair. That's not the American dream. And you're absolutely right. That's not a market wage working. That's the government competing with businesses and making it hard for normal people to run a business and for the workers who are working in businesses to have the same wage as folks who are just sitting at home. It's totally unacceptable. And again, the Biden folks need to deal with this fact. It's so dismissive. My God, it's the president of the United States listening to one of his citizens complain about a problem he created and he can't even do anything about it. Yeah, at first he says stats say that uh, you know this has nothing to do with it, but maybe it does. Really, maybe it does. What stats are you looking at? Meanwhile, President Biden tackled this. I don't know how you feel about I really don't know how you feel about masks. I'm done with it. We had the opportunity to get a vaccine, made our decision. I get it. For kids in school, I'm done. Not President Biden. Look what's coming our way. Cut one. The CDC is going to say that what we should do is everyone over the age of under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. Secondly, those over the age of 12 who are able to get vaccinated. If you're vaccinated, you shouldn't wear a mask. If you aren't vaccinated, you should be wearing a mask. Um, Right now, I asked the Brain Room for stats. Deaths by age group, zero to four, statistically zero, 165. Looking at those, a lot of these were pre-existing conditions. For the flu, there were 81 deaths for kids, zero to four. Five to 17, 0.1% of deaths. In terms of cases, 2% of the cases 
are zero to four, five to 17, 10%. That's not a reason to put a mask on a kid and stop them from interacting and growing. Do you agree with that? I absolutely do, Brian. I mean, look, masks maybe were a reasonable response in April when none of us knew what was going on. We were all trying to be cautious. April of last year. It's now July of 2021. We need to do something different. And to your point, I got a four-year-old and a one-year-old kid. You know what I care more about for them? I'm not worried about coronavirus with them because if they get it, statistically, they're going to be fine. What I am worried about is my baby boy is not being able to see the smile of another kid. And this is what we're doing to our children. In the name of protecting them, we're actually stunting their development, making it harder for them to interact with people. That's a whole hell of a lot more important than preventing a very minor disease for children. These are not 80-year-old people. These are children, and we're making it harder for them to live their life and learn and develop. And I think it's just a disaster. And I got to say, the public health authorities who have foisted this on our kids should be ashamed of themselves because their entire job is to weigh the costs and benefits. You, gotta, you can't just be worried about the health pandemic. You've got to be worried about the psychological effects of isolation, of shutting these kids off forever, of not letting them see the faces of other people. That is a problem, too, and it's, a, it's an absolute catastrophe that our public health authorities aren't thinking about that stuff, too. And I'll tell you, J.D., if you came around and said, hey, listen, uh, as a parent, I feel comfortable sending my four-year-old with a mask. I respect that. I don't want the president of the United States to tell me what to do with my third grader. I have no interest. I don't believe he's even a doctor. Uh, I'm going to check his records again. He's not. Even if he was a doctor, I want my expert. You could give me your advice, but you don't tell me what to do with my kid for two years. Excuse me. That's a no-go sign. I want to bring you to legislation. There's a lot of talk about an infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure bill. The man you want to replace in Ohio, Senator Portman, is helping lead that charge. Here he is about the chances of it passing next week. Cut 12. It's going to take a little more time. And we always knew that. I mean, for the last week, we've been saying there's no way we can pull this thing together. By today, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. He can set the schedule uh, however he wants, and he chose to have the first vote today. We've told him we're not ready. So we're going to vote no. Uh, but we will be ready by the end of this week, and, and we've always thought that. And we still have four or five issues we're discussing with the White House and negotiating with our Democratic colleagues, Republican colleagues, are intent upon getting it done this week. So, J.D., he's a former, you know, he was former OMB director. Rob Portman knows his stuff, and he's willing to deal with Democrats. But everything he negotiated out is going to be in a reconciliation bill. This will be about $1 trillion and $580 billion of new money. If, I, if it was Senator Vance, from what you know, would you be voting for this? No, I wouldn't. And the problem here is the Democrats are not negotiating in good faith. Like you said, they're taking things out of this bill as an act of compromise. But it's fake compromise because they're just, they're just putting it in another package that's going to get passed and shoved down our throats a few weeks or a few months later. And look, bipartisanship sounds great in practice, but bipartisanship requires that the Democrats are good faith negotiating partners. Right now, what the Democrats are showing is they're getting every little thing that they can. They're not giving a crap about what Republicans care about, and they're not offering anything in return. So I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize that this particular infrastructure package is going to be a big boondoggle. It's going to have a lot of Democrats spending priorities. It's not going to actually fix the roads and bridges that really do need fixed in our country. We've got terrible roads and bridges in a lot of parts of our state uh, here in Ohio, but we're not going to send enough money to that stuff. We're going to send too much money to Democrat pet spending projects, 
And that is not the sort of thing uh, that's worth compromising over. We've got to actually get something if we're going to give something. And right now the Democrats aren't giving anything. But you would be able to say the flip side is we were going for legitimate infrastructure, broadband bridges and tunnels. And that's what we passed. Yep. They jammed human infrastructure uh, of daycare, preschool, junior college, elder care in a package that had nothing to do with infrastructure. The flip side is why Portman and Cassidy are for it and Mitt Romney are for it is because they say we could at least say we did something that needed to be done. Yeah, look, if, if, if we can call the Democrats bluff and actually put together a real infrastructure package and say, hey, let's vote this up. Let's vote it up or down. I'm absolutely supportive of getting more money into our roads and bridges. You may appreciate, uh, Brian, in southeastern Ohio, we've got terrible broadband access issues. It's hard sometimes to give, even get an Internet connection in certain parts of southeastern Ohio. Let's invest in real infrastructure. But if these folks are not going to offer that and they're just going to use it basically – as a weapon, a negotiating weapon, so they can get all of their pet spending projects but not get anything into real infrastructure right. in our state or in our country, then, then that's not real bipartisan negotiation. That's getting played and trying to pretend uh, that you're not. So we know every election is tough in Ohio, whether Republican or Democrat, although Republicans are starting to really emerge in your state. So you want to replace Rob Portman, who's moderate, and someone who's labeled by some, Tim Ryan, a moderate Democrat— also is going to be a candidate. So even though there are others to get through a primary with, you are the favorite. Mike Allen on another network uh, of Axios, founder, weighed in on this race, 31. In tough districts, either close districts or Trump districts where Democrats want to hold or upset a Republican, that they're having to run against the party's national image. If you're going to watch one race to see this play out, that Ohio Senate race is going to be so instructive for so many reasons. And we've talked about how J.D. Vance uh, seeking the Republican nomination is going to be testing a lot of the Republic, uh, the populist themes that we're going to see play out elsewhere, including tech censorship and uh, China jobs. But look at the other side. You know Representative Tim Ryan. He's somebody who is now seeking the Democratic nomination for Senate, and he epitomizes this effect. He's out with a three-minute campaign ad. In three minutes, he doesn't have room, runs out of time, to say one word, that one word, Democrat. So that's what you're running against. What's your assessment of his assessment? No, I think Mike's basically right. And, and the problem with Tim Ryan is just he's been a total fraud. I mean, he's been in Washington for 20 years. He's never really fought back against China, which is poaching our manufacturing jobs. Ohio has seen a huge loss of our industrial base while Tim Ryan's been in office. And he's talking about it now because Donald Trump brought it to the foreground, but he wasn't, he wasn't really fighting on this stuff his entire time in Washington. The other problem that Tim Ryan has is the Democrats are so crazy on these cultural issues. I mean, look, most people, Democrat or Republican, they think we live in a good country. They don't think everybody who lives here is a racist. They don't want their children to be taught that there's no difference between men and women, boys and girls. But the Democrats have gone so crazy. I mean, you, you have to have a totally new vocabulary to talk about race and sex and gender in the Democrat Party. And a lot of people in Ohio look at that and say, even if they maybe agree with the Democrats on some issues, we don't want to have to invent a new term to describe every little thing that exists out there. 
And, and, and I think the Democrats, they've gone so crazy on the race and gender stuff, the critical race theory in our schools, making people feel ashamed of their history, that Tim Ryan's going to have to run away from that. But unfortunately, he's actually been in office, and we've seen what's happened, and he's basically supported the Democrats' crazy cultural agenda the entire time he's been in office. I don't think it's going to play very well in Ohio, even with a lot of moderate Democrats. So you're getting attacked, which shows you're a serious candidate. Uh, I see The Atlantic did a big story in the headline, The Moral Collapse of J.D. Vance. Uh, <laughs> and they, they point out the fact that you come out as a conservative uh, instead of a truth teller in his own community. What the quote goes, Vance as a candidate has become a contemptible and cringeworthy and cringe inducing clown. Which reaction to the Atlantic? Hardly a uh, hardly a conservative magazine, but they're going after you hard and personal. Yeah, you know, as Harry S. Truman said, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. But look, the Atlantic and a lot of the liberal media is attacking me because they know that I'm a threat. And uh, you know, one of the things that I think Donald Trump revealed about the mainstream press is that they attack the people the most who they're afraid of the most. They don't attack the people who they think are on their side, and they don't attack the people they think are weak. They attack the people who are strong. And I actually take the Atlantic, the Washington Post, the fact that they're going after me as really a badge of honor because I think it suggests they're afraid of me, and I want them to be afraid of me because I'm not going to D.C. to represent them. I'm going to D.C. to represent good middle-class people in Ohio who just want to have a good life. Uh, You were out in the Hamptons, the fundraising. How'd that go? You know, it, it, went, it went great. I mean, you know, you've got to raise a lot of resources to make a campaign work, and we're raising a lot of money in Ohio. We're going to raise a lot of money nationally, too. Uh, I, I have had some success in the business world, but not so much that I can totally self-fund a campaign. And so, you know, we've got to get out there and raise the resources. But the thing I'm most excited about with our fundraising is not, you know, whether it's in Ohio or elsewhere, it's not the big-dollar fundraisers. It's the fact that a lot, I mean, a lot of people – are going on JDVance.com. They're giving us $10, $20, $30, and we've got a real solid, wide base of grassroots donor right. support. And that just makes me think that our message is actually working. Have you reached out to former President Trump? Yeah, pre- yeah President Trump and I actually met in person um, a few months ago in, in Mar-a-Lago, and obviously we'd love to have his endorsement. I don't think the president's going to endorse in this race uh, anytime soon. I think he wants to see the candidates compete against each other, see who's the strongest candidate, and then he may weigh in after that. Uh, but, we'll, you know, we'll see. And obviously uh, he's, he's a big voice here in Ohio. I think his, his endorsement would be transformational. I just don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. All right. He's a military vet. He's an Ivy League grad and his self-made success story. And now he wants to be the senator from Ohio. Uh, J.D. Vance, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. You got it. one 408 You listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. We come back with you. Listen and pick up on some things you didn't know before. You're with Brian Kilmeade. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Gwen Barry is a symbol of defiance. You know, her symbol is like John Lewis said, she created good trouble. You understand? And that's something that you should be proud of, when, particularly when a people or a race of people are in the fire. Many individuals run when that, in, in that crisis situation, but there are certain individuals that stand tall for all those individuals that stood as well as those that ran. 
So uh, that is John Carlos famously put his fist in the air with Tommy Smith in 1968 talking about Gwen Berry doing a great job. Good trouble. I don't see it that way. I mean, you just can't place third place in the U.S. trials and you decide to turn your back on the national anthem. That's not me. I don't look to represent the red, white and blue if I feel it's such a flawed country. And I much prefer the attitude of even though I understand people feel as though life is unequal and unfair, depending on the color of your skin. I understand that there's a sense that people always could tap into why me, you know, why a. Why does why don't I have money? Why don't I have this? Why don't I have this background? Why isn't my house bigger? It never gets you anywhere. And talking to George Foreman in the same Olympics, who went on to be a two-time heavyweight champ and a great entrepreneur, who never had a bad day in his life, according to him, especially uh, in his comeback after he became a minister and made all those millions and won that belt. He talked to me yesterday on prime uh, on prime time, seven o'clock. You're going to see me again tonight. Here's what George Foreman said yesterday, not only about the country, but about the cops. Cut 18. When you say something about Muhammad Ali, George Foreman, a few of us, even Joe Frazier, it was the police who started the PAL, Police Athletic League. They taught us how to box. They would travel from one state to another to see that we won these Golden Gloves tournaments, sent us off to the Olympics. I have this fond memory and love for this country and the people in this country. Nobody will ever be able to talk talk me out of that. And no one will ever talk to me and say it's worth it on a Olympic stage to take a knee, uh, whether it's the national anthem or on the podium. It's not even in contention. But we saw that yesterday with uh, with the U.S. Sweden uh, answered. The U.K. answered uh, to me. If you want to talk about that in the interview after, go ahead. But your field is not the stage. Afterwards, before, go ahead. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. This hour, we're going to be talking to Dr. Cole Sapphire about these new revelations on this new variant. And Peter Spiliakis, a columnist for the National Review, wrote a very telling story about the state of television news as well as late-night TV. To put in perspective, they're desperate to get ratings. So what are they doing? They're targeting Trump and targeting Fox. Enough. Can you just go out and make jokes and be an equal opportunity offender? Since when does everything have to be politically motivated? Those are some of the things we're talking about. Uh, And there's also a lot going on in Washington, D.C. They're looking to get a lot done over the next week. And the time is ticking on this administration, who yesterday on the January 6th inquiry about what happened, led up to it, during it and after it, it looks like they do not want Jim Jordan on there, did not want Congressman Banks on there. Therefore, they, uh, Nancy Pelosi actually kicked them off. Kicked them off. So Kevin McCarthy pulled everybody out. Was that the right move? We'll discuss it. Big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Fabric, the easiest way to get affordable life insurance. Learn how to protect your family against the unexpected at meetfabric.com slash Brian. Number three. It seems like every day there is a new scandal officials here are having to deal with. In this latest incident, the director of opening ceremonies, Kentaro Kobayashi, has been forced to step down. He's accused of making fun of the Holocaust in a comedy skit that aired back in 1998. Well, here we go. Uh, staggering starts for the least, uh, for the most part on the Tokyo Olympics as athletes led by Americans take a knee. 80-plus test positive of COVID-19. Fans are banned and scandals get three officials fired. And we have not even had the opening ceremonies yet. That's tomorrow. Have we lost our American way for our team? Not if George Foreman can help it. You'll hear from him. Number two. This drunken spending binge Democrats have been on for the last six months is having a real effect on inflation. It's increasing the cost of everything we buy because they're spending money like crazy. They're paying people not to work. It's all borrowed money. It's increasing inflation. And I think people across the country get that. The spending splurge. As inflation rises, Democratic pollsters are alarmed because Americans are angry about the rise in prices of just about everything we use and need. What does that mean for the nonpartisan and the partisan deals? I'm talking about infrastructure deals. As they Are they both queued up to pass Congress? Yes, printing money we don't have for Democratic things that we don't need. We go inside Washington for the details. Number one. The CDC is going to say that what we should do is everyone over the age of, under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. Wow. Remasking America. Get ready. That's what President Biden just told us the CDC is telling us to do. We have to take a stand for ourselves, our businesses, and the next generation. Vaccinated and unvaccinated, we have to make our own decisions. Sadly, despite a statistically small chance of getting the virus, they're zeroing in on school mandates again, too. That is not news. Uh, to my next guest, Dr. Nicole Sapphire joins us now, uh, author of Panic Attack. Dr. Sapphire, welcome back. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me. Well, were you surprised the president said that yesterday? No, you know, after the American Academy of Pediatrics came out recommending children vaccinated and unvaccinated wear masks in schools, I thought it was only a matter of time until public pressure kind of spread its wings and everybody started making policy decisions based on a lack of science. So the American Pediatrics flies in the face of the WHO, who said kids under four should not wear masks. Right. So, Brian, you know, this has been a frustration of mine for the last year and a half. I mean, let's go back a year and a half ago. The reason that we said initially, the very beginning, kids should wear masks is because we knew nothing about SARS-CoV-2 and how it would affect children. If it was anything like flu, it would affect them severely. Well, it quickly became obvious that it didn't affect children the same way it was affecting adults. But then we still continued to mask children because they could be the potential silent super spreaders. And so maybe that was how we were going to protect the vulnerable teachers and adults. But now here we are today. We have ample data that show that children are less severely affected by this virus. They are less likely to transmit it to other people. And any adult at this point who wants to be vaccinated already can be vaccinated. So why are we still continuing to mask our children other than public pressure and some unrealistic level of risk and fear that do not play out when you look at the data? Right. And let me tell me if this data lines up with yours. I asked the brain room that, uh, Dr. Sapphire, and here's what they said. Zero to four over the last year, zero deaths 
uh, from kids zero to four. There were 165 deaths from zero to four. When you look at the kids and the number of people in the country, statistically, that's zero percent. Five to 17, 328 deaths. That comes up to zero point one percent. In terms of cases, only two percent of the country had cases in zero to four, and you saw how few uh, resulted in uh, deaths. Five to 17, 10 percent of the cases. Now, compare that to flu and everything else the kids take a risk with and the emotional damage it does to kids who will now be shut down. And believe me, when you put a mask on a kid that young, it's shut up. The message is don't talk, don't look. You shut them down now for almost two complete years. That, that to me, should be a decision the parent makes. Uh, Brian, you know, mother of three here, you know, this has been something that I have talked about for a long time now. In the beginning, I understood why we put masks on them. I cannot come up with a reason at this point why a healthy young child should be wearing a mask. One of the things you didn't know in the childhood deaths, there have been virtually zero deaths among otherwise healthy children. So the majority of children in the United States are not at risk for severe outcome when it comes to COVID-19. One thing that the UK did that the US has still not done, the UK looked at all of their pediatric COVID deaths and they found that significantly fewer than that reported was actually attributed to COVID-19. I don't understand why the United States isn't doing the same thing, but at this point, Brian, it doesn't even matter. With less than 400 pediatric deaths, and they are still saying mask the children, it doesn't matter if there were zero pediatric deaths. I don't actually know what metric they need, whether it's low community spread, a low amount of deaths, for them to say, feel comfortable to take off the mask. We will never get to zero risk. But yet we have more than 500, 800 children die every year from RSV, another respiratory virus, or die from accidental drownings. Yet people still have pools, and we have never put masks on children to protect from RSV. We have to get back to a level that we have perceived a normal and acceptable level of risk before COVID-19. People are paralyzed in fear, and the data does not back it up. It doesn't. So, Dr. McCary, you mentioned, we, why aren't we focusing on things like you just said? Why are any kids dying? What was the series? Let's look at the individual cases and learn from it. Should they get one shot? Should they get less of a shot? Uh, what about those in the U.K.? that only got one shot. Does that play into the fact that so many people say they have, uh, they've gotten the virus through, they've gotten the Delta variant? So I want you to hear what Dr. McCauley said to me yesterday. He should be ashamed of himself, by the way. The NIH last year spent $41 billion on research grants. 0.4% of that went to COVID. If he is so convinced that masks are needed in kids two and a half years old, why didn't he fund the study? I'd love to see the data. There's no data. And that's because he has not funded that study. So, I mean, that's that's the irony of it all. So he'll take what the Pediatric Society says, but do your own study. We gave you plenty of money, right? <laughs> Marty is a good friend of mine. We agree on a lot of things, which is why we're constantly texting. And I agree with him there. The problem is that for some reason, the United States is not investing into studying how COVID-19 is actually affecting children. They're just continuing to stay behind this mass. Uh, veil of fear. When it comes to one dose versus two dose, whether we should even be vaccinating our children or not, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're being far too rigid. They are being way too black and white. It is they should not be just considering it has to be 
full-dose, two-dose regimens, especially in young, healthy adults and children, we should be considering maybe the one dose, as Dr. McCary recommends, because that second dose does give a boost in immunity, maybe we should be having two doses but lessened doses to decrease the amount of inflammation, which will likely decrease those side effects like myocarditis that we're seeing in the younger, healthier people. I cannot understand why Dr. Fauci, if he all, are being so rigid in their recommendations. Their goal right now is to push immunity into the country, but they are blinded in using deductive reasoning and being fluid like we usually do when it comes to science and medicine. And the fact that they are still not acknowledging natural immunity is astounding. Proof of antibodies following infection should be just as good to an employer or to a school as a vaccine card. They need to get on board with the data, with the science, and stop this blanket push that truly is neglecting real data. So the White House, uh, and by the way, why do you think that is? Just to, just to Dr. Sapphire, your opinion on why they haven't felt that's a priority when clearly there's so many parents and grandparents and kids themselves who want control of their lives and want to know the data. Listen, black and white is very easy. It's much easier when you don't have to explain things. And when you already have a level of vaccine hesitancy in a country, by giving areas of gray, that may confuse people or it may make it even more difficult. So they're trying to be so black and white. But there is so much data. And in the advent of social media, when people are actually able to read studies and see what other experts are saying, by not acknowledging some of this data and truth and just suppressing them altogether adds to that level of hesitancy, adds to that level of conspiracy. When you have just as much scientific data showing how strong, robust natural immunity is as you do as the vaccine, you have to start acknowledging it or else you will find people being more reluctant to take the vaccine if they don't have the antibodies. Understood. Uh, I want you to hear more information that I find distressing. Uh, The White House aides are in talks with officials at the CDC about proposing messaging to the public about masking up again, vaccinated and unvaccinated. How much harder will your job be selling the American people on vaccines you believe work if they still have to wear a mask? Uh, uh, Continuing indoor mask mandates, uh, mandates in general, when you have the majority of people vaccinated, it really undermines the entire vaccine effort. Uh, people, why would they go, the people who still haven't gone to get the vaccine, at this point, why would they go get it? You're not proving to them why they would need it when you're starting to talk about breakthrough cases and putting masks on back again. People are going to think, well, then I shouldn't even get the vaccine. But that's not true. The reason we recommend people get the vaccine is because it decreases your risk of severe illness and also decreases your risk of giving the virus to someone else who it may actually severely affect. Anyone who wants to wear a mask for that double layer of security can and should continue wearing masks. But at this point, mask mandates need to be out the window. If someone is choosing not to get vaccinated, then they are accepting a level of risk on their own, and that is on them. We need to stop looking at new cases because we have an over-testing problem. I don't really care if someone has non-viable virus particles in their nose when they've been vaccinated. That's not a new case. They're asymptomatic. They have a little bit of virus particle in their nose. That is an immunity success story because the vaccine has made it so that virus is not replicating and making them ill. So so let me transfer that. Let me translate that. Are you saying stop testing vaccinated people? 
I'm saying stop testing vaccinated asymptomatic people. Stop testing asymptomatic people who have antibodies from prior infection. Those are not real cases. The data is showing they are probably not transmitting it to other people. It certainly isn't making them sick. So why do we care? That shows the vaccines and natural immunity are working. What we want to focus on, look at hospitalizations. If the hospitalizations start drastically rising, then something is going on. Maybe it's a new variant. But these new when you do PCR tests, what that does is it can take a tiny little virus particle in the nose and it amplifies it. But that's and so that comes back positive. But listen, Brian, if you're vaccinated and you're exposed to the virus, you can get that virus in your nose and it can sit there for a while. But it's not invading you because your immune system is blocking it. It's a vaccine success story, not a new case. Think of, if you've ever heard of MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, those can cause life-threatening infections. That bacteria is all over a bunch of people's skin. It's all over a bunch of people's nose. It doesn't cause any problems unless you're immunocompromised or you get cut. But we are not going around swabbing everyone for MRSA, calling them MRSA cases. We only cause call it an MRSA case when it's actually causing an infection. That's what we need to start doing with SARS-CoV-2. I cannot understand why we are still PCR testing asymptomatic people who have been vaccinated or who have antibodies. This is muddying our response, and this is causing a level of panic that is unnecessary. Yeah, uh, and they're testing everyone at the Olympics, most of which have been vaccinated, and if they have uh, traces of the test, they make them sequester for two weeks and maybe quit the sport, and they're out of the Olympics. uh, these people are nuts. It's not just in our country either. It's elsewhere. We need the right people in charge that have a complete picture like yourself. Uh, I just can't believe we're doing it. I just think it's going to come down in the next two for the, we're going to say for the variant while it's raging, everyone's going to wear a mask again. Forget it. People are done with that. Why am I going to go to a restaurant if I got to wear a mask? The answer is I'm not. Therefore, restaurant owners, the economy starts spiraling backwards. No one's going to go to hotels. They're tired of traveling. They're going to go back to their backyards where we all know. It's where most of the time there is spread, if there is going to be spread. Um, I uh, cannot tell you how exasperated I am with this. Also, and I'm over, where's the, where's the Regeneron? People that get it, are we, are we finding out if Regeneron's available? Are they, is, are we, we've had plenty of time to make this stuff. Well, and let me tell you, people are not actually talking about treatments very much, but I can tell you on outpatient basis, the monoclonal antibodies are available, they are working, and they, you know, unfortunately, there is not as much hype about treatments. So I think a lot of physicians may not actually know what to do. They may not actually know the protocols. Um, and, but gotcha. the good news is that when people need treatments, they are available. They're just not talked about as much. Dr. Sapphire, can't thank you enough. Pick up a book, Panic Attack. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Back with your calls, 1-866-408-7669. You're listening to The Brian Kill Me Show, the latest on the Texas Renegades in a moment. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. The fastest three hours in radio. 
You're with Brian Kilmeade. It seems like every day there is a new scandal officials here are having to deal with. In this latest incident, the director of opening ceremonies, Kentaro Kobayashi, has been forced to step down. He's accused of making fun of the Holocaust in a comedy skit that aired back in 1998. Kobayashi took over in March when his predecessor stepped down after making sexist comments. The opening ceremony also recently lost its composer after an interview resurfaced where he revealed he bullied and abused disabled classmates. So this is pretty unbelievable what's happening at the Olympics. They had three major scandals. They have 80-plus athletes testing positive. Now you have um, – uh, and I, I think it's a big deal. You probably don't. But when you have all these other athletes taking knees, this Chilean soccer players, the U.K. soccer players, the U.S. and the Sweden, they did it orchestrated. Now, it could be worse. I hear they stood for the national anthem. That would be great. They're sitting down or taking a knee for discrimination, sexism, and everything else that's bad in the world. My sense is do it in the interviews. John Carlos did it on the, on the stand in 1968. He talked about it. Cut 14. Why am I being defined? Because I felt like as a young individual, I represented America. But at the same time, America seems like it doesn't want me to represent self. And that's a distaste in my, in my mouth and in my mind. I don't know what, what that means. You, you earned your way in the Olympic team. You made your stand. Uh, I appreciate your place in history. My hope it is, doesn't happen all the time. People who aren't happy with the traffic or with, uh, with the way society is, play it out. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Billionaire humanoid Jeff Bezos launches himself into space tomorrow morning, and he made the rounds today with his crewmates to discuss the most fascinating thing about space exploration, him. Everybody who has been to space, every astronaut comes back and they say that it changed them somehow. I don't know how it's going to change me, but I know it's going to, and I'm excited to find out how. I don't know what it's going to mean for me. Everybody who's been to space says it changes them in some way, and I'm just really excited to figure out how it's going to change me. Personally, I hope it changes them into a person who pays any taxes. And I was sitting there saying, pretty funny, and then here we go again, and the crowd doesn't laugh. Uh... Uh, they don't laugh, they clap as if to, they're at a rally, as if he's running for office. It's exactly what Peter Spiliakis wrote about in his column on National Review a couple of weeks ago, who broke Stephen Colbert, who, by the way, is still number one in late night, even though the numbers are a fraction of what they once were. Peter, welcome back. Hey, Brian. How you doing? Good. I mean, now that they're back in studio, I really see what you're talking about each and every time. In fact, I find myself DVRing it at night to see if someone's going to break the code, the code of advocacy for a party. Do you think it'll happen? Do you think somebody will just say, Trump's gone? It's time to make fun of my own people again. The short answer is probably not. Uh, But what was interesting about his... uh what was interesting about his monologue yesterday, day before yesterday, now, was you know the Jeff Bezos stuff. Tucker Carlson basically made pretty similar jokes about Jeff Bezos on the same night. So maybe there's a little bit of hope for our country, our country on that level. But as for the partisanship, I don't see it. When I actually looked at the ratings between um, 
between Tucker Carlson and uh, Colbert a while back. And this was before live crowds came back, so it might have changed a little bit. But their ratings were virtually identical, even though one guy is on a cable news show and the other guy is on a major network. And not only that, I mean, Stephen Colbert has the option of bringing in celebrities like The Rock in order to bring in non to bring in non political viewers. And for the two guys to be running neck and neck, kind of kind of demonstrates part of the. Lim- He's operating in a niche, a political niche, and he's trapped for multiple reasons. But I thought that the best example of his problem in that monologue was actually the Rand Paul, Dr. Fauci stuff. Because when you look at the Rand Paul, Dr. Fauci stuff, it literally – it was missing two things. One, jokes, and two, laughter. I mean basically what he did was he just had Fauci and Rand Paul and the audience like trained seals knew to cheer when they saw when they saw Dr. Fauci. I mean it was just like, and it was just it was actually kind of pathetic. It was like it was like the when dogs salivate when you when you ring a when you ring a when you ring the bell. And it was one of those things where it kind of you can kind of see one how this allows him to be it allows him to be lazy. In other words, if he needs to kill a minute or two in a monologue, he can just kind of show a picture of Ted Cruz go blah, and then the audience will will cheer for two or three minutes. Now that's killed a couple of minutes. I mean, that's 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 two less gags that his writers have to have to come up with. And but it's at the same time, it's kind of pathetic because he is a talented guy, and there actually is a little bit of comedy to be mined from the Rand Paul Fauci dynamic because Fauci. Now, Fauci's been misleading multiple times to Rand Paul, to Rand Paul's face in a hearing like uh, several months ago when Fauci showed up fully vaccinated, wearing not one mask, but two masks. And, you know, Rand Paul's like, you're fully vaccinated. Why do you need two masks? Why do you even need one mask? And Fauci was like, well, you know, you know, he hemmed and hawed. And later he admitted that he was doing it in order not to send a what he called a mixed message. So, you know. Rand Paul was right. What Fauci was doing was theater. He was lying to Rand Paul that it was theater. And, but you don't have to take a Fauci side on it. Fauci has an interesting perspective. In other words, that you know he's more interested in what people do than in people believe in the truth. And sometimes you have to mislead the public in order to get the public to do the right thing because he thinks that the public is largely composed of chumps. There's a lot of comedy to be mined there from Rand Paul's perspective and also from Fauci, who's kind of like – who operates kind of like the, the pencil neck version of Colonel Jessup in A Few Good Men, where basically, you know, a lot of what Fauci's, a lot of Fauci's attitude could be summed up as you can't handle the truth. Because Even though he'll, if, I tell you that, that I, I agree, and, and he, but he, but he pushes back on that. You saw how angry he got, really, for the first time that I've seen him when he says, "I'm not a liar, you're a liar." I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, uh, right there, there's a ton of late night stuff." You could talk about how this thing got schoolyard so quick. And the other thing that keeps in mind, too, when Josh Rogan was on here, Washington Post, CNN, hardly, you know, bastions of right wing school of thought. He was exasperated. He said, I can't get people to write the story of where this virus started. I'm telling you it's in the Wuhan lab. And then he tweeted out after that exchange. I hate to say it, guys. You probably don't want to hear this. But uh, but Rand Paul was right. Well, you also have the cir- the circumstances. Well, listen, Fauci constantly misleads people. I mean, not all the time. So a lot of the stuff he's saying is true. But if he if he feels he can get a better result by misleading people, he will do that. Like he he basically said that he was articulating a standard of what herd immunity was, the amount of per- the percentage of people who have to be immune before the disease stops circulating. He was 
he was giving out a percentage based on what he thought popular opinion would accept rather than what he thought the herd immunity threshold really was. So this is part of what Fauci does, and, and he's not alone in this. This is a, There's a culture within public health authorities that sometimes people need to be told what they need to hear and not told the truth. It predates Fauci. It's a culture that he grew up in. But it's also kind of weird to see a circumstance where you have a large group of people, largely liberals, who are cheering for Colonel Jessup in A Few Good Men. Like in that 1990s movie, Colonel Jessup is a military leader and basically is a leader of the military. He feels like he needs needs to do what he needs to do, and he's not going to accept any criticism from people who don't have his responsibilities but are still protected by him. And, you know, Fauci's attitude towards all this stuff because, you know, you need me on the wall. You want me on the wall. Don't judge me. You lay down and you wake up under the protection that I and the public health authorities provide for you. So don't question me. And yeah, he gets mad when his authority is when his authority is 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 questioned because he sincerely believes that he has the professional obligation mm-hmm. to do what he needs to do. And if sometimes what he needs to do is mislead the public for the public's own good, then you know. That's saving lives, and people who are getting in his way, people who are calling him on it, are getting in the way of saving lives. And I mean, that's but there's a lot of comedy to be mined there. From on the one hand, you know, Rand Paul's like Inspector Clouseau's attempt to elicit admissions from Fauci that he's lying, which Fauci is not going to do, at least not in that environment. You know, a year from now, two years from now, where he's comfortable, he might say, "Yeah, I misled people. That's what I need to do," but he's not going to do it at a congressional hearing. And on the other hand, Fauci's you know Jack Nicholson type reaction to having his authority questioned by people who he thinks are his moral and uh, professional inferiors, which is how he definitely feels that right. Rand Paul is. So, so, I mean, yeah, that's that. So, so Peter, looking at uh, back to late night for a second, and as we look at what we miss and what was happening, you know, when uh, when when Johnny Corson was competing, uh, he had other people that wouldn't get close to him, but they would compete against him. Uh, you would see who was funnier. And now it's so much politics is into it. I'm wondering if it's going to be just a phase. I asked Adam Carolla that, stand-up comedian, self-made success story as a podcaster, uh, and a really good talk show host. Here's what he said. If you host a late-night show or you're involved with a late-night show, the biggest important subject you have is bookings. Are you going to get George Clooney on your show or are you going to get Scott Baio on your show? It's all about bookings, right? So think about the politics of some of the biggest actors and biggest stars. You know, you want Hillary Clinton. You want the the royal family. You want Prince Harry. You know, you want— Ben uh, Affleck. Yeah, you want Affleck. You you want Barbara Streisand. Well, if you want those people, imagine just getting up there and going, I I voted for Donald Trump. I like his policies. (laughs) You would never book another one of those— celebrities ever again. Does you agree with that school of thought? I actually hadn't thought of it, but that's actually correct. But what he's talking about is you can tell jokes from from the Johnny Carson perspective. I don't know who Johnny Carson voted for. And I don't think, you know, most of his audience knew who Johnny Carson voted for. But he could kind of follow the jokes where the news story went. Now Colbert's a liberal guy. His inclinations are going to be following more in one direction than another. But you know, there's funny stuff on every side of the of the political debate. But I was actually thinking like we spoke last time. I think part of the dynamic, especially for a lot of comics, whether it's Jimmy Kimmel, whether it's Stephen Colbert, is these guys were funny and telling jokes long before the current environment existed. 
So basically what happens is if people on the – basically left-wing people on the internet decide that you're one of the bad guys, they can go through your vast catalog of jokes, and they can decide that basically they're relevant again. So basically uh, there was a movie from a long time ago called The Love Group. Stephen Colbert is a very good role. He's actually very good in this terrible movie, and he plays a – hockey play-by-play man who is slowly losing his battle to mental illness and addiction. It's very funny. But say that a bunch of liberals on the internet decide that, wait a minute, Colbert's the, Colbert's the enemy now. You know what Colbert was doing? He was making fun of the mentally ill. He was making fun of drug addicts. Colbert is problematic. And now suddenly there's a hashtag, pro- Colbert problematic. And now Colbert's got to answer these questions. Like he's got to make, make an apology. Can, there are several choices. He can make an apology and be like, I'm very sorry, I did these jokes. Or he can say, yeah, I did jokes that I offend, that offend people, live with it. But either way, it's a pain. Now, you can never actually guarantee that something like this won't happen. And this might happen to Colbert anyway. But if liberal activists get the idea that he's a bad guy, it becomes much more likely to happen. So he's not just a he's not just a hostage to the joke he tells in the moment about Joe Biden or whoever. He's he's currently living in a hostage situation, which every joke he ever told while he was coming up as a comedian is fair game. If liberal activists decide that he is a target, so there is a very very strong incentive to not become a target. What I wrote like it was, it was a while ago, uh, a lot of liberal late-night comedy is double-filtered. It's filtered through the sensibilities of you know, resistance, resistance wine moms, basically. Like, but it's also, double, it's also filtered through the sensibilities of this volunteer Stasi, of resentful, angry, left-wing internet activists who are just looking for somebody to take down. And he, his, his jokes have to be very carefully crafted to avoid the anger of both of the group, because the first group is like his most loyal audience. The second group are a group of people who can cause him a lot of trouble if they decide that he's a bad guy. Now, there's multiple ways of dealing, especially with the second group. Like Dave Chappelle, if you ask him, hey, you told problematic jokes, Dave Chappelle's attitude is going to be, well, yeah, I did it. If you look through my jokes, you're going to be offended. Everyone's going to be offended. You can like me or you don't. Colbert has not made that choice, and if he became a target, he would have to become, make up make a choice of either you know go through an endless series of apologies about every joke that he told that is retrospectively you know branded as being bad, or he can just tell very tame jokes about Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, and he right. made his choice. I mean, and that, he did, and it's look- ridiculous. And you know who else did? Jimmy Fallon. One time he normalized uh, Donald Trump by treating him like a typical guest. He's been apologizing. His ratings haven't recovered. He has the most boring monologues I've ever heard in my life. He doesn't even finish the sentence. And then to build on your point, Jimmy Kimmel last summer, when it became clear that his attacks on uh, you know, Sean Hannity uh, were falling on deaf ears, Sean Hannity looked up the man show and started rolling in clips of him, uh, you know, abusive thing he said to women. We're funny at the time, but don't fly now. On the man show, putting thing, grab my pants, what's in my pants? And he's doing all these things that he would mock somebody else for. And he basically had to stop the bleeding and took the summer off. Yeah, and once again, Kimmel has a problem. It's, Kimmel taking those hits from Sean Hannity is one thing. Kimmel taking those hits from Media Matters or some other group is a different thing. So, I mean, that's, that's part of the problem that Kimmel faces is that both Kimmel and Colbert – 
based on the choices that they've made. Now, you can make different choices, and I expect that at some point there's going to be some kind of a reaction. Based on the choices that they've made, they have to be very careful about the jokes that they tell. And I don't mean careful in the sense of their jokes not being obscene, but careful in that they don't create the impression that they're the enemy by basically left-wing hashtag activists. Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, yeah. this is yeah, comedy. but but, but that, that's, that's 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 limited. That limits the kinds of jokes they can tell a lot. <laughs> we all lose. And the one person who comes up who doesn't care will be the winner, and we'll see if they get any sponsors that have the courage to back them. Uh, Peter, thanks for putting it in perspective. Truly appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you got it. I love, his, I love your point of view. Uh, he's a columnist for the National Review, obviously well-versed and watches a lot of movies. Uh, Peter Spiliakis, thanks. When we come back, we find out if there's indeed more to know. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. That's right, it's National Hot Dog Day, so between that and Jeff Bezos' rocket, what a week it's been for phallic-shaped objects. We have... All right, uh, that's part of the mediocre humor from late night television. It was the funniest thing we've heard in I, a long time. It's unbelievable. Time. I watched it. I guess I got to tape, you know, tape the other stuff because I missed the Colbert Fauci explanation. I did not know he just played the fight. Well, I mean, we don't really watch it because there's nothing funny, funny. to it. I mean, if we want to start playing things just to show that they're not funny, we can start pulling it. Yeah, that's an interesting approach. Great radio. Uh, absolutely. Uh, by the way, congratulations to Brazil. You scored three goals within 30 minutes, and you're leading uh, Germany 4-2. to two. Uh, in Tokyo, uh, remember Germany beat them seven one. I think in the final, humiliated them. Um, uh, let's I'll find out more in a later. But let's find out if there's more to know. More to know. Sponsored by Oxford Gold Group. Call today to learn how you can protect your retirement and savings account. Eight three three six hundred gold. That's eight three three six hundred G O L D. Well, Rob Gronkowski's got a favorite Sports Illustrated supermodel, and it's not his girlfriend. On Wednesday, the former cover girl, her name is Camille, appeared on Sirius's XM. This is happening with Mark Zito and Ryan Sampson, where she made the surprising revelation. According to her, the Tempe Bucks player, who now is 32 years old and came out of retirement to play again, um, is a huge fan of 2021 rookie model Tanya White. Costic shared that she and White did a photo shoot together in Miami, where her beau got to know the star, uh, the star more. This is trouble. This could be like a Lady Gaga thing when it came to. Oh, um, uh, Bradley Cooper <laughs> could be, but she goes on to say that he brought the dog, and the other model was very sweet with the dog. So Rob said she's um, his favorite because she was a good dog sitter. Next. The 75-year-old Sylvester Stallone is a father of five. Sage, who died of heart disease at 36 in 2012. Sergey at 42. Sophia, 24. Sistina, 23. And Scarlett at 19. He shares his three daughters. By the way, I saw a picture of them. They're very attractive. Married Jennifer Flavin. Uh, on Wednesday, he was proud father, took to Instagram to share a photo of himself standing with his daughters. Quote, I'm very lucky man to have such wonderful, loving children who brought me nothing but joy. Now I wish they would stop growing so tall. I guess they tower over him? Um, they all at least meet his height or are taller. So, wow. I mean, and he's not a small guy. Next, I'm at peace. This is sad. Bobby Bowden, one of the greatest coaches and inspirational person, reveals he's got a terminal illness. He's 91 years old. He did have the COVID virus, did beat it, became personal friends with the president, but he is uh, thinks it is over shortly. So sad, knowing the end is near. 
Very religious guy, by the way. Florida State coach, maybe the greatest of all time. Fourth overall in wins. Which then, I mean, it's good to know that he has that piece. It, it's sad at the same time he has time to say the goodbyes that he should want to say. I'd rather not. I'd rather just go. hit a wall. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting discussion with the two ways to go. Right. And but, not enough a discussion with, I don't know, less than 30 seconds left in the show. <laughs> correct. Hey, watch me tonight at 7, prime time. Uh, I hope you join me. We've got a great roster of guests, including Governor Chris Christie uh, will be there. Uh, and then see you back on Fox and Friends. And always go to BrianKilme.com or to any of my books. They're pro-American. I warn you, I will sign and send. BrianKilme.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.